0: Hezekiah's reign is a divided nation between Israel and Judah, and he's king over Judah. So here in Psalm 130, we see him pouring out his heart in this penitential psalm. He is, because of his position as king and intercessor... And we think of those intercessors in the Scripture and immediately comes to mind Abraham as he interceded, prayed for another. Intercessing means to go between for someone else, to stand in the place for someone else, as Abraham did when Lot was in that place of danger, sinning, and about to be uh, judged with the unbelievers of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we think of godly Samuel, who was minister all during and prophet all during the time of Saul, and remember that Saul depended so heavily on Samuel, although he didn't always do what he said. He was kind of a, one of those surface relationships where he knew Samuel was right. He, he declared, oh, how faithful you are. What would I do without you? And even when Samuel died, Saul said, who will pray for me now? What, how am I going to, to conduct business without Samuel? although Samuel was often a thorn in his flesh because he told him the truth and he uh, was a true minister to him. But God, uh, Samuel told Israel, God forbid that I would sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. He was always interceding for Israel's backslidings. And so here Hezekiah prays and confesses the sins of his nation as if they were his own. And that's that's something that you might not have thought about, but that's what it takes. You see throughout the Psalms, Lord, forgive our, our nation. And the pray, those who are praying do pray and confess their nation's sins as if they did not. Sometimes we sit smugly and think, oh, we live in dark days. Our nation is just going down the tubes as if that's them and this is us. Now, I know that, that our nation is not a theocracy, but it is a nation. And God has raised it up for this time. And we're here. And we should pray for it no less than these interceders would uh, during the time of, of the Bible times. In fact, although history books and Wikipedia might not record it, but if you read uh, the first edition writings of the Founding Fathers, you'll see they spent much time in the Constitutional Congress in prayer. And they, when they reached a, a point, uh, they could not know how to go forward. They, they, they called for a time of prayer. And uh, that has been the earmark of this nation. That's not saying that every person who had anything to do with it was a Bible-believing uh, Christian, regenerated, born again. Some of them were. But most of them, even those who were referred to as deists and, and, and other titles, called for prayer and asked for God to intervene. We see that all but gone in our nation today. It's talked about and religious freedom is talked about, but you see very little righteous leading In places, high places and in offices. And when it is, it's decried and derided. And so we are in a dark time. But dark times take for for stalwart men and women, those who will pray, those who will intercede. These type of intercessors, as we've noted, have always been few. Because it is difficult work praying for someone else. We can pray for ourselves when we get a bad doctor report or for our children and so forth. But when it comes for standing in the stead for someone else, uh, prayer in itself is wearying. It's difficult work. If it were not, we'd do more of it. The, 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 the more spiritual the task is, the most, more spiritual the discipline is, the harder it is to do. And so uh, admittedly, intercessory prayer is difficult work repenting and pleading on behalf of others no wonder though our families and our churches and our cities and our nation is in the, the condition that it is in because there seems to be such a dearth of this and if the church is any indication which it always is the lack of prayer in churches and in church services and in prayer meetings show uh, that why we're in the situation that we're in this psalm is divided into two sections. The first, his personal experience, and then a public exhortation. And we, we begin to look at his personal experience here in Psalm 130. Out of the depths have I cried, he says there in verse 1, unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. You see an urgency there. He's crying out, Lord, I need you to hear. We need you to intervene. The situation at hand had caused such depression out of the depths. He's in despair. And uh, if the human writer is Hezekiah, it's uh, hard, not hard to understand why he's in such despair. It was a dark day. Uh, there's a strong similarity between the words here and in Isaiah 38, verse 9, which read, The writing of King Hezekiah of Judah when he had been sick and he was recovered of his sickness. He yeah. had recovered of his near-death illness But still he had horrible problems. Sometimes there's one problem in our lives that stands out so big that we think if that was solved that we wouldn't have any others. But have you noticed when that one is solved and out of the way, we have a short memory. Then others crop up and are just as big and looming as that one. And so he and his wife were barren, as we've mentioned. And there would be no son to carry on the line. And that royal Davidic line, the line of David... So that is a problem, isn't it? God has made these promises. He's crying out, Am I going to be buried? Am I going to be childless? No son was born. And years would pass before a son would be born to him. Not only was he without a son and had been just delivered of a sickness, Hezekiah had national enemies. Assyria was plotting to come in and take over Judah. The capital city was Nineveh. And a world power uh, for uh, hundreds of years, a formidable foe. And now they were on the march. And coming from the north, Assyria was certain that they could overthrow puny, insignificant Judah. And Hezekiah tried appeasement. He tried all the, those kinds of things. He tried calling in his uh, so-called allies, Egypt and Babylon. They uh, half-heartedly decided they would help. But uh, Hezekiah is in, a, in a, a strong, difficult situation here the godly prophet Isaiah, who is contemporary to Hezekiah, if you'll think of Isaiah and Hezekiah like Samuel was to Saul, warned him not to trust in human helpers. That's the tendency, isn't it? And it usually gets us into trouble. Not that God doesn't use humans to help us, but when you look to the arm of flesh instead of, or before you look to God's outstretched arm, it will cause you to compromise often and to get into trouble. And so Isaiah warned Hezekiah, Don't look to these human allies. They they, they will if, if God is not for us, it didn't matter who's with us, and if God's against us, it won't matter who's on our side. But if he is for us, then it won't matter who comes against us. Now, that's not a case, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, the attitude. Uh, he was advising him rightly. Hezekiah saw the enemy advancing, and there was no help in sight. So you can see why he said, Out of the depths I'm crying Oh, Lord, for your help here in Psalm 130. What lay ahead for his nation? There were all kinds of questions. Were they going to be obliterated? Would they be deported? Would God's people be destroyed and Jehovah's plan and purpose be annihilated? On top of this, even more depressing was the nation's spiritual condition. And I would tell you that really ought to be at the top of the list although in our studying of it we've mentioned it it after the national enemies and his personal problems. The spiritual condition of the nation, apostasy, uh, departing from Jehovah and serving idols, had been going on throughout the nation for years. In Israel, the northern kingdom had been ravaged and the best of their people had already been deported, so it was not as if that could not happen to Judah. Hezekiah's father was a wicked, horribly wicked king, and he had caused Judah to sink even further in apostasy and to idol worship. Now, Hezekiah began to instigate, institute reforms. We could not really call them a revival. There are different, there's a difference in reforms and revival. Not that reformation is not bad, putting things aright, doing away with things that are wrong. But reforms only go so far. And they're usually outward things. But a revival is an inward, deep, and lasting Work of the Holy Spirit, whereby spiritual decisions and and, and actions are changed. It is good to have reformation, but reformation without revival is only that. It will only last so long. But true revival gives the reformation life, and it it causes the Lord's arm to be outstretched. Now, he was in a place of authority. He should have removed the idols. He was the king of, of Judah And Jehovah was their their Lord, and His Word was their guide, their constitution, if you will. And He should have done this. God forbid idolatry. And so He brought about some reforms, but it was largely on the surface with with little real difference. And so I would tell us as individuals, make sure that we're not just turning a new leaf or doing reformation, making some changes without heart-searching repentance. The hearts of the people were still hard, still rebellious. And still were idol worshipping. Some of the vilest sins were open, and, and, but they had been dealt with uh, to some degree. Religion had been revived, but the hearts were unchanged. You see, again, only the Holy Spirit can do a work in the heart. You can pass laws. You can, a pastor can say we're going into a new direction, whatever. But hearts can only be changed by the Holy Spirit. A few years later, Hezekiah would be dead. And things would be worse than ever. And his son, Manasseh, that son he prayed for, that long-begged-for son, would be Judah's worst king ever with a long and vile reign. And they would never get over his terrible, horrible sins. When Assyria's threat was over, you know, that seems to be their worst problem, doesn't it? With Nineveh, the capital city, marching toward them, about to take over Judah. But when that enemy was gone, guess there was another one. After Assyria, there was Babylon. Do you realize the enemies of the flesh will never go away? The world, the flesh, and the devil, just when you conquer one area in your life, and by the Lord's help and with His Word, there's always the flesh to conquer. There are always spiritual enemies. Don't ever think we can just take it ease, and now we've got, glad that's over with. Now we're on the right track. That's good and well, but always be on the lookout of the snares of the wicked one. And so, we see if this is King Hezekiah here in Psalm 130, Why, he declares, out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Notice in verse 2, Lord, hear my voice and let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Now, that's interceding. Every generation needs intercessors. Every family needs those who intercede. Every church needs for godly people to stand and pray. All of us who know the Lord can take part in this ministry. There's, there's no special talent. There's no age limits. And while you may not be able to stand in a Sunday school class or go out, in, 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 out of your home or whatever it may be, you can still be in that place of prayer and that most important place of prayer. And I would tell you, this place can do far more than any other things. Uh, not that other things are not important. And so all of us can, can intercede on behalf of others. And so Hezekiah became Judah's mediator here. He pleads with God like Abraham, Moses, and Samuel. We see what a godly line of men and people there are that stand in that place of interceding. During his first year as king, he repaired and reopened the doors of the temple. And as we've mentioned, it was unbelievable. The temple had been barred up and used evidently as a warehouse. Can you imagine? And then he, he called for, after they cleaned out and it took... A, a, a ton of people working—exaggeration—a exa- large group of people—to clear out the rubbish from the temple, that beautiful, un, unparalleled building set aside for the worship of Jehovah. The Levites and the priests had been on a year, several years sabbatical. He had to call them into session, and he got them to clean up the temple and to get rid of all the trash and the rubbish. And uh, it took him two weeks just to haul off. All the trash that had accumulated there. And we could, we could ask the question, I wonder what unnecessary stuff has been piled out, up in my life that's crowding out the work of the Lord to go on. What rubbish needs to be cleared out of the local church for the Holy Spirit to be able... What programs, what things are we leaning on instead of the Lord's power and His might that, that, that might need to be done away with? Shallow preaching, prayerless ceremonies the lack of public scripture reading, the, the, the fleshly, man-centered worship which is so prevalent today. God in spirit, he, our Lord says, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. True worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And He goes on to say, and the Father seeketh such to worship Him. What what a strong word. God is looking for people who will worship Him in that way. Then Hezekiah cleaned out the temple, carted off all the rubbish, restored the, the, uh, the Levites and the, the priests... And he restored temple worship. He reinstituted the, the offering of sacrifices. Amazingly, for some while now, they had not been offered. And he reorganized the temple choir. And if you want to read in Second Chronicles, you don't have to turn there now, but in Second Chronicles 29 gives the record of all that was accomplished. Then he opened the great Passover observance of all things. That was the one event that pointed to the coming Messiah and the work of Christ in our place. And that and The first that had been observed For years and years, he reinstituted it. He sent out invitations all across the land of Judah and to to the remnant of Israel in the north, urging them to join together in this great national effort to worship the Lord. And so it's amazing that that, uh, we don't say that Hezekiah was not successful. He did many things, but admittedly, a lot of these things were surface things. You can reopen a church. You can start having prayer meetings. You can start doing the right things, but unless the Lord breathes life, unless the Holy Spirit moves, all is vain. You see, the problem is we often look to a program, or if we start doing something, then God is, is uh, obligated to meet in kind. And that kind of reasoning is a surface Reasoning. It doesn't deal with the issues of my heart and your heart. And that's where revival... Revival is not in a church building. It's not a meeting. It's not a seven-day or ten-day or three-week period of time, although we might refer to efforts to seek the Lord's face. Revival is a personal matter of deep work of the Spirit by the Word of God, which causes us to lay off sin and repent and be right with the Lord in a spirit of obedience, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And so, I'm not criticizing Hezekiah, but the danger here is to say, let's start this and God is sure to bless. Let's begin this and it, as if there's some magical formula. Now, where God speaks, we should speak. He's told us to assemble ourselves together. We have the pattern of the New Testament church, which was born in a prayer meeting, that prayer ought to be a major thing in, our, in our, our worship and in our, the program of our church. but it reminds you of, you know that sometimes those efforts, while good, if we lean on the program, lean on the, the actual doing of something, we lay off the deep inner work that should be done. Hezekiah begged the people not to repeat the sins of their fathers which had brought the nation uh, to so low and many of them mocked his efforts. You see, The majority of the people think these kinds of things are drastic and not needed and that he's being fanatic and all kinds of... You can imagine the names, religious fanatic, he's gone crazy. But sin needs to be dealt with. And there's always must be a voice crying out in the wilderness. We see the prophets in the Old Testament were largely by themselves in calling the people to repentance. Sin has to be forgiven at the point of guilt. And we see here, back to our text... Out of the debts have I cried unto thee, O Lord. In verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. As I mentioned, sin must be dealt with. And we see in the Scriptures that sin must be dealt with ruthlessly and to the point. And therein is the problem. We often deal with sin in general Lord, forgive me for all the sins I've committed and, and in this general way instead of being uh, dealing with it at the point of guilt. If I've sinned against my wife, I need to make it right with my wife. If I sin against my boss or my neighbor, I don't ask my wife to forgive me if I need to go to my boss and ask her to forgive me. If there's a wrong between me and the boss or my neighbor... And to go over here and try to make it right with someone else, that's not going to do anything. You see, the forgiveness and guilt must be dealt with at its point. Sin must be owned up to. Confess openly. If it needs to be confessed openly before God, always. And if it's a private sin, it needs to be dealt with in private. If it's public, it needs to be dealt with in public. We see that throughout the Scriptures. Sin, since all of us sin, and our sin is ultimately against God. It needs to be made right. As much as life in us with those that we've sinned against. And so there we see the workings of true repentance and revival. What it will look like. Under the Old Testament sacrificial system for sin, sin had to be dealt with at the root. At the point of offense, at the point of guilt. There was the sin offering which dealt with the principle of sin. In other words, I am not a sinner because I have sinned. That only proves that I am a sinner have sinned because I am a sinner. And so those were the, the sin offerings. And then, in other words, we do what we do because we are what we are. Then there was the trespass offering. The sin offering was for the fact that, that they were sinners. The trespass offering dealt with the practice of sin. It called for making things right with the one who had been injured. And then coming and making things right with the Lord. Our Lord mentions that. Uh, in the New Testament, when you bring your gift, leave your gift, go and get be right with your neighbor, and then come back. He says here, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Is there any wonder that there's no real fear of the Lord in our meetings, in our personal life, because these things have not been dealt with in a biblical way? When the Holy Spirit does His gracious work of revelation... Remember, Jesus called him the spirit of truth. He will show you, he will convict of sin, he will convince of sin, he will show you truth. And when he does that gracious work, and we say gracious because it is a work of grace, it may not feel right, it may be hurtful to us, but when the Holy Spirit does his gracious work of conviction in our hearts, and when he ministers forgiveness to us, he plants in our hearts a reverential awe of the Lord. And we see the price he paid to forgive sins. Calvary is the purchase price. There's always a price for sins to be forgiven. If God passes over and he does so graciously, it's not a passing over because of no reason. Calvary is the reason that God's sin must be paid for and our Christ did that in our place. And God puts deep within a repenter's heart a deep disgust of sin itself. And one of the ways that you can tra- test your own repentance is, do I hate what God hates? Lord, bring me to a place where I feel about my sin the same way you do. And that puts it in a very different light. We can think of sins that others do that would disgust us and make us absolutely enraged. Someone molesting or bothering a little child. All kinds of things that should absolutely bother us. But do we see our own sin to the degree of disgust and loathfulness that we would something like that? You see, our sin is an offense before a holy God. And we must pray, oh Lord, do a work in my heart where I see my sin in that way. Where I hate it the way I would hate some horrible, despicable abomination of someone else. Then we see the the termination of the psalmist there in verses 5 and 6. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait. And His word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Always note those repetitions in scriptures. They're important. He is determined to watch and pray. That should sound familiar to you. Remember when our Lord called his disciples to him and he went to Gethsemane. He said, watch and pray. Why? Lest you enter into temptation, a time of testing. Now, God will test us. But could it be that... Some of our overwhelming test and giving in to sin is because we have not watched and pray. If our Lord said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And so the, the, the king here has determined, I'm going to set a watch. Now, you know that military term where the sentry stood, he was absolutely duty-bound with his life. To be alert, vigilant, watching for the safety of the city. And... Uh, we might call, in the scripture, we call that waiting upon the Lord. It's a spiritual exercise. It's not sitting in a rocking chair and saying, okay, Lord, do something. That's not waiting. The psalmist declares, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait. You see, this is, this, this is an inner spiritual work. And in the, his word, is, do I hope, we must learn to wait upon the Lord. For one thing, have you found out, if you've been saved any length of time, I'm sure you can agree that God is never in a hurry. Even when I am, it seems as if, and I know He does does nothing capriciously, but even if I am in a hurry, it seems like He slows down even more. The spiritual work of the soul that He desires to do in us takes time. This process of sanctification where God shows us sin and we lay it off and ask for His help, Is a time-consuming thing. But God is working not just for today, not so that Chris Lamb can feel good about myself and be happy today. He's working for eternity. That brings in a whole different perspective to what He's doing in my life today than just me not feeling comfortable on this specific day. He tirelessly works to bring our souls in line with His will. It is a gracious work, isn't it? You wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be listening today had not the Holy Spirit brought you to a place where you would listen, where you do want to be instructed from that point of showing you your sin and conversion until this process. Lord, show me. Let me grow in grace. i crying out to you as the psalmist does here. And so he tirelessly works. He brings situations like Hezekiah's illness, like Assyria marching on them, or the, the the natural national apathy of His nation to grieve Him. And if those things were not allowed in God's sovereignty, would any of us be moved to pray and to watch and to intercede? God hears. Some would say, it doesn't seem like God is listening. God hears. His ear is not heavy that He cannot hear. He can hear thoughts. He can hear intents. So yes, He hears. God hears us, He watches for us, and is working all things together for our good and for His glory. The word wait there, He says, my soul waiteth for the Lord. I want you to to note, the word wait means to bind together, literally in the Hebrew, by twisting. Uh, You you might think of the the strands of a rope being twisted together so it will be strong and firm. Uh, to collect things together, to expect, to, to gather, to look for, to watch for, to tarry patiently, to wait upon. It has all kinds of connotations. But it certainly is not idleness. It's not doing nothing. is the same word used in Psalm 25, verse 3. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Show me thy ways, O Lord, and teach me thy paths. And then in Psalm 25, verse 5, lead me in thy truth. And teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation, on thee do I wait all the day long. It's the same word used in Psalm twenty seven, fourteen. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. It's the same word used in Psalm thirty seven, verse seven. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself. So waiting is not a of worrying or fretting over what God is doing or not doing. In verse 34 of Psalm 37, wait on the Lord and keep His ways. And so there's this dual, while I'm depending and relying and letting the Lord work in my life, I am keeping His ways. I'm being obedient. And He shall exalt thee to inherit the land. We think of those classic verses. If I were to ask you what one verse comes to mind when you think of waiting on the Lord. Isaiah 40 verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Jeremiah 14.22. Therefore we, we will wait upon thee for thou hast made all these things. Lamentations 3 verse 25. The Lord is good to them that wait for him. What a promise. We're told to wait, and then he says, I, He will be good to all those that wait for Him, to the soul that seeketh Him. So we see there, if we put all these together, waiting on the Lord is a seeking Him, seeking His face. How do we seek His face? The only way we can do that is through prayer in the Word. Show me thy ways, O Lord. The Lord is good to them that wait for Him, to the soul that seeketh Him. So waiting and seeking are one and the same. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord, and that means the deliverance of the Lord. The Lord working out those situations, not just the salvation of the soul. Hosea twelve verse six: Turn thou to thy God. So we would see that waiting has repenting in it, doesn't it? Lord, I'm, I'm. You've shown me in this time of seeking Your face, this particular area, that particular lack. And I'm turning to you and from it. Remembering repentance is always a turning to the Lord and from the sin. Keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God continually. He tells us there in verse six of Psalm one thirty, My soul waiteth on the Lord, upon the Lord more than they that wait watcheth for the morning. And then they, remember, we said he repeats it, I say, more than they that watch for the morning. The old Testament priests were a vast number. All of them descended from Aaron. There were hundreds of them. And there were so many of them that they were divided. All the priests were divided into 24 courses or 24 groups. Only for one month, every two years, would that course or that division have the privilege of serving in the sanctuary. So there are 24 of them. And only once every two, two years in one month out of that year would there even be an opportunity for that priest to serve, In his course, there were hundreds of priests in each of those 24 courses. So his turn might only come up once in his lifetime. Talk about waiting. Lord, I'm in the priestly family. I'm to be a high priest. But it could be that I only serve you one day, literally, in the temple in my lifetime. Remember, John the Baptist's father was serving when the Lord visited him. And uh, they were all excited because he was inside and he was stricken where he could not speak. And so this puts a whole perspective on what waiting means. You think you've waited a while? Can you imagine waiting all your lifetime to light the incense one day in your whole lifetime? But now his time has come. The word has come. You're going to serve tomorrow in the temple. Can you imagine the excitement for someone who was born to the priestly family? who had been taught all the ways of the priesthood, what to do and how to do it, but he'd never been able to do it. He could only hear about it. And as one of his course were to go and serve, it would trickle back and he would tell them what it was like. He's going to offer the morning sacrifice. Can you imagine what excitement and and anticipation would be in that man's heart? All the people would be watching him. Now that he was finally going to serve his one day, every eye... Of the hundreds who'd come for the sacrifices would be watching. Nothing could go wrong. Don't you know that he rehearsed every step, every word, every detail. The responsibility is all his. He no doubt has rehearsed this moment in his time all of his life, hundreds of times. But now, I'm I'm just thinking of the night before he goes to offer the sacrifice. Like that priest, the psalmist had had waited for the Lord. You may wait all your life for... The Lord to work in a specific area. In fact, you may never in this lifetime see Him answer a prayer or do what He says He will do. More than He wanted deliverance, more than He wanted to have it fixed, He wanted the Lord, and that's what waiting is all about. Some people are praying for revival just to clear up all the trouble in our land. Well, we've got a it's a dark day, things are bad. Let's have revival, and so it, it seems like that some people think they can just put this recipe in, and, and then God will. Make everything right, you see. There are people who are praying, there's women who are praying for their husband to be saved because they just want him to be respectable and quit acting like that and quit carousing and come home and be the husband and come and sit next to me in church. But then uh, if the Lord does save him, they didn't bargain on all that 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 would mean for for the work of the Lord in his life, you see. And so we just sometimes, that's why James says we ask and we ask amiss, It's not just for God to be glorified and righteousness to prevail. We want to feel better. We want the problem removed. We want to to be more respectable. We have to uncover those hidden motives. Certainly, we want the Lord to act in our situations. We do want, we say in principle, for God to bring about revival. But have we ever considered what that might mean? What drastic measures it might take? What the Lord might do, what, what He might withhold. What economic situations he might cause to bring that to pass. It seems that the idol of America is, is, is Wall Street and pensions and investments and the monthly uh, check that comes in. What if all that was removed? Lord, send us revival. Well, the, the prayer meetings would be full then, wouldn't they? And people would begin to call upon the Lord. We we need money. We need help. We need you to act. But Do we want the Lord more than we want circumstances to change. We've seen that the psalmist's personal experience, but next comes his public exhortation. Look in verses 7 and 8. Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with Him is plenteous redemption. And He shall redeem Israel from all of His iniquities. Our Lord holds our times in His hands, doesn't He? He holds and knows all things. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we ask or think. We noted back in verse 3 where he says, O Lord, if thou should mark iniquities, who should stand? Now, the Lord knows all things, doesn't He? He has the hairs of every one of our heads numbered. And I ask you, how many sins does it take to be a sinner? How many times does it take of stealing to become a thief? James says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, He is guilty of all. What hope, I would ask us this morning, does anyone have, if God marked all of our iniquities, even to the very thoughts and the intents of the heart, those sins we would commit if we could get by with them, not just the deeds we have done or dream about. And and He knows all of that. And so that's the God whom we come before. And He holds our times in His hands. If He would call into account every misbehavior, every deed, every idle word and thought, well, we certainly need mercy, don't we? We need grace. We need a Savior. Who would be left standing if God were to call into everyone into account right now, apart from Christ? We would have no hope. In Christ alone, we sing. Who would be left standing? There is none righteous. No, not one. And so he prays, Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, if you were to call in all of our debts to your righteousness, there would be no hope whatsoever. We're all then marked and beyond the hope of, of, if left to ourselves. We can't even remember all of our sins to confess them, can we? If we made a, a, an earnest effort to confess everyone because of time and the frailty of our minds and hearts, we couldn't do that. We never can truly know the depth of them anyway. Even the sins that we're confessing, we have no way to, to know the ramifications of that sin against those we sinned against. We can only surmise and we shudder to think. But God knows, He knows like those the ripples of a pebble that it drops into the water, how far-reaching that sin is. Even when we confess what sin we know, we have no idea how deep the dye has gone, how deep the stain has gone. We never can know the depths of them, the harm that we do, not just to other people, but against, against the holiness of God. We fall so short of thinking only of how uncomfortable the sin has made me and how bad it must be for someone else. And very rarely do we ever sense the far greater uh, ramifications, our sin against the holiness of God. Remember when David repented, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. On the surface, we would say, David, that's not true. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against your marriage. You sinned against your other living children. You sinned against Uriah You sinned against the unborn child. I mean, we could go on and on. But at the root of it all, at the bottom of it all, David had sinned open-eyed against God and God alone. Others were affected, but his sin was against God. Notice what he says here. There is forgiveness. What a declaration. In the midst of apostasy, idol worship, and we must hand it to Hezekiah. He is trying, isn't he? Don't, don't for one moment think that he should not have cleaned out the rubbish, that he shouldn't have reinstituted the sacrifices, that he shouldn't have called the Levites and said get to work <laughs> and the priests you know, begin to do what we should do and uh, to call uh, people into to account. And yet, we should not criticize that, but we notice that, that Hezekiah declares, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Notice that the most important phrase in verse 4 is the most important phrase that we could think about ever, it, wherever. The fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. To hate evil is the beginning of the, of the fear of the Lord. This fear of the Lord is thou God seest me, and I will stand and give an account before thee one day. This is a worshipful, reverential awe as we come into the, the sanctuary, as we come as we meet together in this place, lifting our hearts in song and worship and prayer and praise this reverential awe and trust that includes not only a love and a desire for God and holiness, but an equal hatred and turning from sin. God does mercifully forgive sin. Oh, I'm glad to report, you might think, well, you're painting such a bleak picture here. Who has any hope? Well, the, the bleak picture has to be painted before we'll run to Jesus Christ, the only hope. There's no other hope. If we bypass this hope only found in Christ, there is no more sacrifice for sin, the writer of Hebrews says. If we fall, fail of the grace of God, there is no other way. There is no other recourse. God does mercifully, mercifully forgive sins. There is forgiveness in cleansing with Him for those who truly repent and call on His name and ask Him to do what, what He alone can do. Well, He begins to wait upon the Lord. I will wait and seek your face more than they that watch for the morning. This must be time set aside for the, the Lord to speak to him. And let me tell you, the way the Lord will speak to you is by his word. He will always recall the teaching of God's word, the verse of scripture. And uh, he will make it very plain. I remember years ago praying about a specific matter in my own life. And I was seeking the Lord's face. I can show you where I was sitting. In the room I was in, if it was there, it's no longer there. It lived in a little house right on this street here. I was sitting at my desk. And I was praying earnestly for the Lord to work in a certain way. And immediately this verse came to mind. Not an audible voice, but the the verse came to mind from James. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I wasn't reading James, hadn't thought about James. But I had heard and read and studied that scripture. See how important it is to know the truth? And then I began to think about that verse. Well, Lord, where am I double-minded? You know, the, the Bible goes on to say in that portion of Scripture, that let not that man think that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Well, it was getting more desperate. Lord, I'm praying and seeking your face, and you've told me for your word, brought to mind that word, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And the Holy Spirit began to work and show me the area in my life where there was double-mindedness. You know, Trying to, to, to be spiritual on one side, but allowing uh, for something on the other side. And God is so gracious to do that. How does He bring that to pass? By His Word. He shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, if the truth is not being read, or preached, or heard, how would we ever be free? How will sins ever be pointed out? It's amazing how the Word of God can point out, even through a lesson like this, he can personalize it, can he? And zero in to the thoughts and the intents of particular hearts, mine and yours, and as he did Hezekiah these many, many years ago. And so my soul waiteth for thee more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. He was thinking as he looked out from his palace window, no doubt the sentries, the guards, and they had a certain period of time that the day was, the night was divided up into watches. And they'd have to do that for a specific period of time. And so obviously, Hezekiah set aside some specific times to, to wait and to seek the Lord. And say, Lord, show me what needs to be dealt with. Show me where I need to grow, where I need to repent. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. And then he says, let Israel hope in the Lord. You see, God works on an individual level. And we've spent most of our time discussing that here. And that individual does what he or she can to, inf- to influence their family, their nation, their church. But now he says, let Israel hope in the Lord. What was Israel's hope? It wasn't in Egypt, was it? It wasn't in Babylon. They're going to soon be enemies of Egypt. Israel's greatest enemy was not Assyria. And our greatest hope was not other allies. Your greatest enemy, your greatest um, problem is not the problem you think it is. Is something far more insidious. And it never goes away. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Let Israel hope where? In her might? In her power? In her reforms? In her temple worship? No, let Israel hope in the Lord. God has a way of removing all the props that we lean upon. Maybe not bad things in, in, in and of themselves, but the, the, the writer of Hebrews calls them weights, the weights we, we, let, we look to the arm of flesh, these props to prop us up. Let Israel hope in the Lord. And I would tell us today, let us hope in the Lord. He's the only one. And with Him is plenteous redemption. Not just redemption, but plenteous redemption. Can the Lord send revival to our nation today? Of course, we believe that. Not just revival, but plenteous revival. I think sometimes we think, well, with Hollywood so filthy and the politicians so wicked and the churches so commercialized and, and, and we could go on down the list that we continue to go down, we wonder, really, deep in our heart, can there be any revival? But Hezekiah thought so. There is plenteous redemption. The need, though, is not reformation, but it's redemption, isn't it? A, a salvation Oh, we should be interceding on behalf of others. Lord, save my children. Save my grandchildren. Save that one that's nearest hell. He shall redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Not just some of them. Not just cleaning off the porch of the church house. Not just instituting some new reforms. But all his iniquities. Well, this psalm ought to encourage us to pray. And to seek the Lord's face. And to wait upon him. Let us pray. Now, Lord, thank you for your holy... An infallible word. How it does surgery upon our hearts. And Lord, we rest in You today to do it not only in us individually, but in our church and in our nation. Oh, Lord, we pray. Show us those areas we need to repent of. We repent for our nation, for our worship of idols, of money, and the sensualism and the sin that so predominates our society. Oh, forgive us, Lord. There is forgiveness with Thee. And we praise You for that this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.